If you've struggled with stress, balance, or burnout, and simply felt discouraged or even defeated, if you're ready to move from force to flow and enjoy ultimate Zen success in your career, health, or relationships, then this podcast is for you. Your host, Carissa Sims, is an entrepreneur, corporate consultant, best-selling author, meditation teacher, and healer who has found her own Zen success. Here's your host, Carissa. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Christine McKay, business negotiation strategist, Christine McKay, author of Why Not Ask, a conversation about getting more, teaches Ivy League negotiation skills to small and mid-sized companies and negotiates on their behalf with many of the Fortune 500. Oh, wow. If you get in a room, woo, I bet that's a sight to see. Christine launched Venn Negotiation to close the gap in David and Goliath deals, showing small business execs where they're leaving value on the table. With 25 years of experience, both international and domestic, Christine improves profitability and operational effectiveness through strategic contract integration. Welcome, Christine. Hello. How are you? It's so good to see you. Woo! It's been, we were just talking that it's been a year. And yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> wow. Time flies. And a lot's happened in that year. And, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I'm just curious, like, um, so if someone hires you, like a small business or company hires you, will you actually negotiate on their behalf or do you prefer to empower them and teach them yourself? So we do both. So we find that uh, there's a certain population of people who are simply, I don't want to deal with this. You need to, I just want to hire you guys to go do it. <laughs> So yeah. we'll, we'll do we'll do that. Um, I prefer to to teach somebody how to fish, um, <clears throat> so that they can that's awesome. It, so they can apply it elsewhere, and we teach programs as well to help people improve their negotiation skills. So it's a combination of both things. Oh, that's great. Wow. How powerful. I'm sure it's just a matter of time when people are like fighting over you. And then it's like the same negotiation. Who's going to get Christine? <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about your journey and your story. And I know originally, I mean, your origins, you've been through a lot. You've been, and then you went to Harvard Business School. So what was your journey? And like, what was that moment when you decided that you wanted a change in your life and that success was for you? So it's, you know, I'd love to say that there was one point in time when that happened, but it's, uh, I, I keep learning lessons as I go. And so there oh, are some key points in my life, but I, I was born and raised on a, in a ranching and farming community in North central Montana in the middle of pretty much nowhere. Um, and I uh, grew up in a town of 450 people. 
And my dad was the ranch foreman. My mom was a ranch cook. And I used to ring the dinner bell so the cowboys could come in from the bunkhouse to eat dinner. So I, for, for those who are above a certain age, you will recognize the Bonanza reference. But I lived a very Bonanza life in my early youth. And I was a really great student. And I was an honor society. I was a beauty queen. I competed in public speaking. I did all these amazing wow, things. Wow, that's incredible. Um, yeah, it was it was amazing. And um, and then when I left home, um, my, my home life was not amazing. <laughs> um, and when I left home, oh. um, I, you know, kind of the 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 train went off the tracks, so to speak, oh. Everything kind can, of went off the rails. Can I just ask, did you have siblings growing up? I did. I have. I do. I have one sibling, and he's one year and two days younger than I am. So not quite Irish twins, but um, yeah. so we were we were pretty close growing up. So um, and when you live on a big farm and your closest neighbor is you know with kids is ten fifteen miles away, you <laughs> you, you just spend a lot of time with your siblings playing. So um, but when I when I turned nineteen, um, everything just kind of came unraveled. And I discovered that I was pregnant and I had just lost my job. And so I got evicted from the trailer I was living in. And I started living in the back of my, my 1972 Chrysler Newport. Um, and, and you were pregnant. There. So you didn't have any pregnant. kids yet. Okay. I did not have kids. I was at the time I was pregnant. Um, and so I was homeless. I was part of what in the United States we call the hidden homeless. So when I could, I would um, surf from one neighbor, one sofa to the next. Um, I did not have health care. Um, you could not get food stamps. I couldn't get food stamps because I didn't have an address. Uh, and so, oh was, gosh, is that's awful. See, I didn't yeah. even know that about. Yeah, yeah. I live. Stamps. I actually live in Los Angeles near Skid Row, and. You know, homelessness is an expensive proposition, um, which that's a different conversation. But yeah, it, but it's an know, interesting and important one. conversation. It, it is. It is. And, you know, I, I mean, I walk out of my building and, you know, I have a stark reminder of where I could have could have ended up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I so I found I met a guy that I thought I, I thought I needed to be rescued. My men mental state was clearly I wasn't capable of making good decisions for myself. So let's try abdicating that and giving that decision right to another person. And he happily took on that role. Um, but when I decided I wanted it back, he, he wasn't so excited about giving it to me. So, so you married him and yeah. he had a home. Um, no, he didn't. Um, he, he was, uh, he, 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 he had his own issues and, okay. uh, but we, we kind of moved from Montana to the East coast where he was from, um, had two more kids. I was on welfare and, uh, in this abusive controlling relationship and decided that I wanted a different life for myself. And yeah. so, um, and was that familiar to you from your home life or what, what do you think? There was, you? there was definitely abuse in my family. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. There was abuse and alcoholism in my family and there was abuse and alcoholism in my marriage at the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I had two more, I had three kids at the age of 22. And I just, I'd always wanted to go to school. That had always been my dream. Yeah. And uh, I was told, he told me I couldn't go. And one of my oh. girlfriends who is wow. just really, uh, to this, I owe her my life said oh. to me, 
What's the worst? What's the worst thing that'll happen if you go anyway? And I said, I don't know. What do you mean? And she said, will he kill you? (gasps) And I said, no, I don't think so. And she (laughs) said, well, then how important is it? And uh, so I went to community college in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And and did you do it secretly or no? No, he knew that I was going, but I was only allowed to study when my kids were not awake. So I would get up at three o'clock in the morning, which sounds terrible to most people, but I am a morning person and I love being up early. And I would Me too. I'm a total morning person. Yeah. And I'd study from three to 6 a.m. And that was my, my study time. And then I'd go to school and then I, cause I was expected to do all the household things and take care of the kids. And he had really limited role in taking care of the kids. And, um, and so I earned a 4.0 GPA and I earned a scholarship to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in upstate New York, which the year that I went was one of the top um, schools in the United States. And it is one of the top engineering schools in the world. And I got onto campus and I was like, this is going to be easier on my own. And so I told him I was leaving and I took the kids and I moved to New York, uh, upstate New York, which was across the mountains from where I was living at the time. And uh, I did my, finished my undergrad as the, as a single mom. And I was told at the time that I was the first woman to graduate as both a full-time student and a single mom from Rensselaer. Wow. That's uh, amazing. And how old were you kid, your kids when you left your husband? Um, they were what, uh, almost six, not quite six, five and four. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So six, four, and five. Close six, in six, age. four, six, four, and three. Yeah. They were three, four, and five. And then yeah. my oldest turned six shortly thereafter. So, um, so they were pretty little. And, um, and then I started, I met, uh, met a guy who was actually pretty wonderful. Oh my God. And how and, did you uh, do that? Cause we kind of glossed over that. Like, I mean, that just seems impossible. Did, was, did you receive a financial assistance for daycare or okay. I did actually Rensselaer was phenomenal for me at the time. I think it was, I mean, it was in the early nineties and I think that it, it, it was such a, I mean, there was less than 20, roughly 20% of the population were women to start with and as students. And so to have a woman who was, um, who, who had, who had a family was like such a weird thing. And, you know, I got trotted out at all the, you know, recruiting events and the admissions events and all that, which was, I had no problem with that. Yeah. Um, you were was, the diversity. I was the diversity, which, you know, it, for for those who see me, I'm clearly a very white woman. So, um, but I mean, as a woman, so I hate. Uh, yeah, so I wouldn't I wouldn't go diversity as a general rule. Yeah, under, that's the way true. that we do it. The way that we the way we talk about it today, which that's true, is so much more robust conversation, yeah, which we just really value a lot. And so, um, but as as a woman with kids, there were. I mean, even when I did end up when I when I did. Um, get to Harvard, I still was a huge anomaly. I was the only woman with, you know, with, with kids, my kids' age. Yeah. Um, there was one, there were two other women who had children who were, one was like, had, I think I had like a two-year-old and one had, had her child in her second year at Harvard. So it was, there are 900 students at Harvard Business School in my year. And there were three or four of us who had kids to start with. So it was a big deal. And um, 
to the best of my knowledge, no other woman has gone to Harvard Business School after starting, you know, in her early and being an unwed teen mom, having um, been homeless and then then building a life and a career. And and that 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 really nice guy I met, um, I married him. We've been married 29 years this <gasps> July. Um, he's amazing that my experience at Rensselaer launched me into an amazing career where I started out doing international mergers and acquisitions. I've negotiated in 55 countries and I've negotiated with almost half the fortune 500. And wow, that's and, incredible. And, and I, I love, I, I love the, the, I break negotiation down because it sounds like a, it sounds like such a complicated conversation and, you know, professors and, and, you know, make it complicated. And we think that it's sales or we think that it's combative and confrontational. And really for me over the years, what I've learned is that it's really a conversation. Negotiation is really about having an open, honest, transparent conversation about what you want and whether what you want is aligned with what the person you're talking to wants and needs too. And if it's not aligned, is there a path to make it aligned? Mm -hmm. And if it's not, if there's no path to make it aligned, that's totally okay. Yeah. But if there is, then what does that path look like? And um, so for me, it's negotiation is really about empowering people to live the life that they want to be living, to achieve the things that they want to achieve, both in their personal world and in their professional world. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And I was just curious. Um, I'm sure there's thousands of different techniques, but do you think it's important to do research and tune in to what maybe they want and what they're looking for and, and address that and look for some commonalities and how they can, you can help them reach their goal and what they want? Absolutely. So we bring, so the logo for Venn negotiation is a three circle Venn diagram. So agreement happens where all three of these circles intersect and the circles are you, your counterpart and the situation that you're negotiating. So one of those circles is your counterpart. You have to understand, you have to research, you have to study, you have to, you have to be curious. I mean, that's, that's the number one skill set required for any effective negotiation is mm. curiosity. Okay. So you have to be curious about all three of those things in those, that circle. You have to be curious about yourself. You have to be curious about your counterpart and curious about the situation. And, you know, so ways of being curious about your counterpart or researching, understanding who they are as people, looking at social media, yeah. talking to people who know them, but also understanding how, if, if they're in a business or they're a boss or, you know, mm -hmm. how, what, what makes, how do they make money? If it's a business negotiation, how do they make money? How does what you provide the service with your, and by the way, if you're an employee, you're providing a service to an employer. So yeah. if you, whether it's an employer or if you're a customer or supplier, whatever investor, you know, how does, how does that counterpart make money? What, what are some of the issues that they have? How do they, how do they compete in the marketplace? Mm -hmm. If you can create a, a deal or a proposal that actually addresses some of those things, 
that's that's important that that matters and the first person who can do that is more likely to have a successful conversation than that leads to a deal and an out positive outcome than somebody who goes in only focused on what they want yeah, um, yeah. so but the thing is is most com- most people don't actually have a very 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 much clarity even on what they want which yeah, is yeah that's a good is, point which is something you know people say i want more money what does that mean? What do you want to use it for? Because maybe it's not exactly that. Maybe they just want more freedom or something or it's usually, it's usually what it is. Um, Mm. I talk about, you know, I was talking to somebody last week and I said, um, I love to ride motorcycles. I have a motorcycle. I've ridden motorcycles for years. I love to ride motorcycles. So if I were negotiating and somebody were asking, saying, and I said, and somebody said to me, I love riding motorcycles. I'd say, what specifically do you love about riding motorcycles? I like the wind in my, in my hair, which you shouldn't have that because you should be wearing a helmet, but I like the wind <laughs> in my face. You can come to Colorado. <laughs> we, don't let, we don't care about that here for some reason. Uh, um, but I, I like, I like being able to just hop on my bike. I like the rebel thing, whatever it is, yeah. right? then there's more questions around what, what specifically do you like about the freedom or what do you like about being a rebel? When has that worked for you? When other than just riding motorcycles, have you been able to experience that? What has that felt like? When has it not worked for you to be a rebel? When has it not worked for you? What are the negative outcomes of doing that when you've pushed it too far, right? Now, just that one thing, that one comment of, I love I loved to ride motorcycles, can uh-huh. lead me into, because I'm curious about it, it, can lead into just this rich body of questions that helps me understand who my counterpart is and what's important to them. Right? It helps. That's me, amazing. Understand, helps me understand what are their limits, right? I know that the, if I say, when when have you pushed being a rebel too far, you know, or you know, and notice that's not a yes no question. Um, when have you done it? Because if somebody says, "Oh, I love the rebel," like, right? I love, I love the, I love the, I love the Harley culture. What uh-huh. specifically do you love about it, right? I love the rebel thing, you know, the Hell's mm-hmm. Angels thing. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I can understand that. I I'm a bit of a rebel myself. I've pushed that too far. Sometimes have you ever pushed that? When have you ever pushed it too far? Ah. What were the out- and, and not, and what were the outcomes of having pushed it too far? Now I know an outward limit of mm-hmm. something that that's going to make them uncomfortable. Right. And it doesn't mean that they won't move beyond it. It just means that they're uncomfortable about it. Yeah. You seem like a psychologist too. Like you really are diving deep into people. And, and I don't even know these people like that you're negotiating with may not expect these type of probing questions. And, and how do they typically respond to that? Because to me, it just seems like you're creating rapport. You're creating like empathy. You're, you're creating connection so that maybe they're more likely to say yes. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) What do you think? Well, it depends on the person. So for, and, and part of what, as a negotiator, I have to do is, uh, kind of assess is, is, you know, is this, is the style that I'm showing that I'm using now effective, right? Is how I'm asking questions effective? Am I, am I getting more information? Am I creating rapport? Or do I have somebody who's like, 
I don't, I don't, it's none of your business. I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> right. So then I mean, I, I recently had um, a few months ago, I was on a negotiation and I had a guy, you know, sit and, you know, with his arms folded and, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm not talking to you. I don't want to talk to you. And he's like, why in the heck does anyone hire a woman to negotiate anyway? And he made that, asked <gasps> that question. He said that. Yeah. And he asked that question right <laughs> after he made a sexual comment, a sexual innuendo. And, and I, so I. Oh, that's the intimidation thing. Maybe it huh? is an intimidation thing. And one of the things that not many people talk about when it comes to negotiation, and, and we hear this all the time, it's just business. Don't take it personally personal bullshit. But no, seriously, the thing is, is that we are emotional creatures. We feel before we think our emotion centers of our brain engage before our logic does. Emotions are involuntary. Actions are voluntary. So when we feel right. So the th- when that guy said that I noticed how I was feeling and I can go, Oh, let's see. I'm not, I, I, I sense a feeling. What am I feeling? Right. What do I usually do with that feeling? <laughs> usually I'll make some biting sarcastic comment. Well, is that going to re is that going to result in an outcome that uh, I want? Yeah. No. Now I got to have the ultimate freedom I Have the ultimate cho- I get to make a choice. I yeah. get to choose. I can acknowledge that I feel something and choose to behave in a different way. So I, I simply asked him, I said, I simply asked him a question. May I ask you a question, which immediately takes me out of the feeling part. Yeah. Now I'm not feeling now my logic brain is engaged and he's like, Oh, of course, of course. And I'm like, <laughs> What reaction were you hoping to achieve <laughs> those statements? Right. I love and, it. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, clearly you, you were hoping to get some kind of reaction. Let me know what it is. So go into the transparency. Just let me know what you were hoping to accomplish. Then I can tell you if I can, I'm going to play that or not, if I'm going to do that play that way or not. Ooh. And at the end, and, or Touché. we can just, just or, or we can just assume this was all a big mistake and we can move on. Ah, <laughs> uh, and what did he say? A mistake? Oh, I didn't mean anything by that. So, but, oh, but, okay. but, but the thing is, is that I put him on notice that I noticed. Oh right? yeah. I You're not going to let him down. get away with that. I'm yeah. not, I, you know, I called him out on it. I acknowledged it, but I also gave him an out right? Which was important. Now there are times when I wouldn't do that, (laughs) but in this case I needed to get something accomplished. So I gave him an out and will I actively work, look to work with this person again? Heck no, definitely not. But he was a counterpart. He was one of my clients, client, one of my client's clients. And so I had to, I I had to deal with him. So this was, you know, but I won't actively seek him out to, to, to work with him, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but, you know, and, and we were able to move forward. So, um, so that, that's important because the, the psychology, the, you, the centering of who you are, the knowledge of who you are, self-knowledge and self-awareness is hugely important in effective negotiation. Now, now this might be a personal question, but do you feel that there's a spiritual aspect to this negotiation where you kind of like take a deep breath before you go in, you maybe connect or you, you say like, may this be the highest and best good. Do you have any spiritual techniques as well? 
I do. I have a Palo Santo candle burning pretty much oh. all the time. And I have, I burn Palo Santo all the time. And what's um, that just for our audience? What is that good for the Palo um, Santo? Well, for, I find it really just cleanses the air. And even yeah. on Zoom, if I have somebody who's aggressive, especially, or even morose, um, I, I'm an empath. And so it mm. helps me to just kind of stay focused and cleanses the energy where I'm at. Um, I'm huge on meditating before I go into a negotiation. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no. So, you know, I, matter of fact, I just got off of literally just before we got on um, our call, I do a Qigong pra- practice um, with a group twice a week. And so we just, we, it's a bunch of entrepreneurs. We all do this Qigong practice on Mondays and Wednesdays, and it's a great way to start, start my week. And so one and our Qigong master actually talks, uh, one of the things I love that he says is that in order to be centered, you have to be off center first. You have to know what being oh. off center is in order to figure out what your center point is. That is so, profound. Yeah. And so in negotiation, I mean, I said this earlier, so often people don't know what they want and they're not clear about it. And when you're not, so they'll speak in generalities, they won't get specific about things because they don't have that clarity. Meditation helps you get that clarity. It helps you go from being off-centered with frenetic energy or, and you're nervous or you're scared to ask for what you want um, because there's fear involved. So you've got anxiety um, or you're, you're telling yourself, oh, this guy's never going to ask, do what I never going to give me what I want because of this thing that happened, you know, 10 years ago. And, or, or in my childhood, I've asked for this before and everyone said no, right? So we, we either get stuck in the past or we get stuck anticipating the future. So, um, so what happens is that unless we can get ourselves into the present, then effective negotiation cannot happen because mm. effective negotiation only can happen in the present. It cannot happen if you are stuck in the past or if you are fearful of the future. And so I use meditation. Um, I do Qigong breathing all the time. I do moving meditation and before, and I believe in a higher power in a spiritual, spiritual realm. And I frequently ask for the the right words to be be said um Beautiful. To, to to really kind of and to open to my ears to help me stay curious and to help me listen um and so so yeah at, for me the spiritual aspect of negotiation is very 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 relevant oh amazing i'm so glad i asked that question because i was just curious because you feel very powerful to me and grounded. And um, so I was just wondering if you had that spiritual side to you. Amazing. So I hear one of your favorite sayings. What's one of your favorite sayings? Um, that the hardest part of any negotiation happens between your ears. Yeah. What, what tell me more. So, you know, the, and it's part of the reason why I wrote my book entitled it why not ask because a lot of times we'll we tell her we get stuck telling ourselves a story that's not true and if you think about it like our kind of 
reptilian brain, our, our, our ego, our, you know, our kind of our ego response, our self response is, is like, is our body, our mind is meant to keep us safe. Our conscious brain is meant to keep us safe. That's it. Nothing, nothing more than that. It's just like, okay, are you breathing? Is your heart beating? Yes. Okay. Then you're good. You're, 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 you're all, you're, you're exactly where I need you to be. That's, that's all, you know, there. So the conscious brain is about keeping us focused on status quo and, and safety. Right. So what happens is, is that when we want something, which by the way, immediately when you want something from somebody else, your emotion is engaged. Emotion ah. is immediately engaged when you decide you want something you desire as an emotion. Um, and you think people can feel that? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, oh, absolutely. I don't care if you're buying a car, buying, you know, uh, going to a flea market. I don't care if you're watching the Johnny Depp Amber Heard fiasco that's playing out on, you know, the media. I, 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 it doesn't matter. I don't care if you're negotiating for a, a $500 deal or a $5 billion deal. It doesn't matter. It's there's a desire. And as soon as a desire exists, then emotion is engaged. But so what happens to us is we sit and we tell ourselves what's not possible because our brain wants us to stay there. So it's like, well, I want to ask for that salary increase. I want to, I want to hire, I want to make more money maybe. And then the question to ask yourself is what do you want the salary increase for? What does it represent to you? Maybe it means prestige and status. Maybe it's more, you really want more responsibility or a bigger challenge. And, and the economic component is a representation of a bunch of other things. But instead of asking for it, where we tell ourselves, oh my gosh, that's, that's too big of an increase. Oh my gosh, if I ask for that, then they're going to be mad at me. Or if I ask for that, they're going to fire me. Or if I ask for that, that, that customer is going to go someplace else. I'm going to get yelled at, or I'm going to make a fool out of myself, whatever. I mean, it could be any number of things that are generally informed by our past experiences. And so then we don't ask. Or we say, okay, well, I'm not going to ask for that 25% salary increase. I'll just ask for a 10% and I'll be happy if I get a 5%. No, you won't. You're settling. Ask for 25%, you know, ask for what it is that you actually want. And then no. And the thing is, is so we, we don't even ask. And so we prevent ourselves from getting what we want because we don't ask. And then when we do ask and we don't, and they say no. We assume no is definitive and no is except in sex where no means no, but outside of sex, no. Thank you for clarifying. Yep. No is an invitation to ask another question. Mm. And so what specifically are you saying no to? What can you not do? What could you do? What might you do? Right? So the hardest part of every negotiation happens between our ears because it's that connection between a desire and the actual taking of an action to ask for what it is that we want. Mm, That's amazing. So, so a lot of that clarity is important to have before 
before the negotiation, before coming to the table, right? And then, and then do you have like a high and a low, like, okay, I'm willing to accept this. Or are you just like, no, this is it. And this is what I want to get. It totally depends on the kind of negotiation that you're doing. I mean, we negotiate so many different things. Some things have monetary, we assign monetary value to, and other things we, we don't. Um, so, you know, your, your kid walking out and negotiating with you to get the keys of the car, you know, is a different kind of a negotiation, um, than somebody trying to sell their company per se. There's Mm -hmm. some different, there are some, there are a lot of similarity similarities, but there are a lot of differences in that situation too. So it, so there's my, my feedback on kind of my thoughts on that are really about just staying curious because I find that floors, if I say there's, it's good to have boundaries, you need boundaries, Mm -hmm. but you also need to explore whether, be curious enough to, and open enough to explore whether or not that boundary is the appropriate boundary for the situation that you're negotiating. So I find that when people have hard, you know, immovable lines that that they're, they they lack curiosity and what i found is that i i don't negotiate my values so my value systems are really is the only non-negotiable in my experience that the the elements of a transaction or the elements of a deal there there's lots of different ways and lots of creative alternatives to how to, for how to come to a deal. And so I focus on trying to figure out what those, that those creative alternatives are. Yeah, that's amazing. And do you feel that your negotiation skills have improved over time and anyone can learn this? Um, yes. And yes. So when I was earlier in my career, I was more, of uh, I, I was probably more aggressive as a negotiator, a bit mm. harder and less interested in exploration. I was I was probably less curious, um, and I think that that's something that comes with people um, in the the spring and the summer of their 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 lives, right? And then coming into kind of the autumn of one's life where you, you've amassed, you know, you know, a couple of decades of working knowledge, and now you're starting to realize the benefits of that knowledge. And you're, you're able, you're not, you're not learning, you're kind of in an absorption mode and starting to give more that you're able to be more present and more observant of what's happening and how people are reacting to you. So I've learned a lot in the last few years how people react to me in different ways and what works about that, what's effective about it, and what's ineffective about it. Yeah. Do you find that sometimes people judge you when they see you, like they don't look up anything about you and then they just see like you're kind of edgy and your hair and everything. Do you feel like that gives you an advantage because you're such a badass? So I, so my hair, so it's always interesting. And, and uh, 
the millennial and Gen Z ask me this all the time, like, how long have I been doing my hair like this? And I've been doing my hair like this for over 20 years now. And so I've done, I, I was dyeing my hair long before it was an in thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But part of why I started dyeing my hair funky colors, because this is actually tame because my my green screen doesn't pick up greens and blues very, very well. <laughs> so oh, okay. I, it leaves a hole in my head on, on camera. Um, but what I did is because I was working in so many cultures where women have no place at the table, at, they, they just did not have a place at the table. So what I decided, it was like, all right, well, in some of those cultures, I was going to be dismissed and, and ignored out of hand, right? In some of those cultures, um, yeah, I, I was going to be marginalized in a lot of them. So and, and so I decided to do something that was not characteristic, right? Something that made it hard for people not to notice me, for the men in the room not to notice me. And one of the things I did was start coloring my hair. Um, because then what happened is people would see me, the, the, these guys would see me and go, what the heck do I do with that? Right? It's like, who, what? It's like, I'd walk into a room and it, 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 it was a pattern interrupt, there was an expectation of who I was supposed to be and what yeah. I was going to be like. And as a negotiator, right. You know, when I say it, when people ask me what I do and I'm like, I'm a professional negotiator, I'm like, but I don't break kneecaps. Right. It's like, <laughs> I'm not that kind of a negotiator. I'm not a hostage negotiator. Yeah, I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm a business negotiator. And so that pattern interrupt is really valuable. It's a very valuable tool to kind of disrupt how somebody to, to disrupt somebody's preconceived notions and then allows me to rebuild them. Mm. And, um, and, and it's been a very effective tool for me, and, yeah. and, but I have to own it. People, younger people will often ask me, you know, well, how do you get away with that? And I'm like, there is no getting away with it. Right. It, it is like you walk in and you, you just own have it. to. Yeah. You have to be confident. And, and that's yeah. It. It's, it's like I don't even acknowledge. I worked with one of for, for one of the largest consulting and accounting firms in the world with this colored hair. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, is, that's amazing. Totally do. Yeah. And and do you feel like going back to that other conversation and example, do you feel like women are better at negotiating than men like in that? scenario where that man made a sexist comment, were you able to win in your mind that negotiation in the end and get what you wanted? So there's an interesting study that was released last summer by Boston College that looked at boys and girls, I think they were from the ages of three to 10, and how they negotiated with men and women through that period. And what they discovered was that boys negotiate, boys and girls negotiate equally with women throughout that entire time. And boys negotiate equally with men throughout that entire time. But starting at the age of eight, girls stop negotiating with men. And they didn't explore why, what the reasons behind it were, but we have that piece of information now, finally. That's interesting. Um, it, 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 I find it fascinating. And so what, 
and and I heard somebody once talk about how boys are rewarded for doing and girls are rewarded for being, um, you know, boys are rewarded for winning a race, cleaning up the room, doing this, but girls are rewarded for being nice and being pretty and being generous and all these things. Um, and that, and, and I find that to be true. So what I find anecdotally, so statistically women actually are really effective negotiators. Um, but women hate haggling. So we're not as good at um, like the car buying situation or things where we believe that there is a limited uh, number of things that we can negotiate for. Yeah. But we're very effective at negotiating bigger relationships. Um, there, but that's the same can be said for some men, some men. So there's some studies right now that delineate between estrogen and testosterone based negotiation, not necessarily gender based negotiation. Oh, so there's some interesting analysis that estrogen, higher levels of estrogen um, results in a more collaborative, more cooperative negotiation, whereas higher degrees, higher levels of testosterone results more in a value taking competitive negotiation scenario. And so there, I like kind of the, some of the direction that that's taking. Um, you know, I've seen men who suck at negotiation and I've seen women who suck at negotiation and I've seen the reverse, right? It's so, but the thing is, is that we all, we all were really amazing negotiators because seven-year-olds are kids. the best yeah. negotiator on the planet. They know yeah. they are persistent. They recognize that if I ask a question and I get a no answer, I'm going to ask the same question in a different way, or I'm going to go very easily go ask somebody mm -hmm. else for it. I start learning that there's a, a way that gets me more of what, what, what I want yeah. based on what I'm asking, how I ask it and who, who I'm asking it of, but starting around eight or nine, we start seeing consequences to those behaviors. And because we start hearing no more frequently, we start to put the brakes on what we're willing to ask for because we yeah. experience those consequences. Right. That makes sense. And I try, I have younger kids. I have a seven and 10 year old and we used to always call, um, my son baby lawyer, and he's still that tough negotiator. And my daughter too has learned to like raise her bar and be up with him. And, and, you know, I try to reward my kids when I say no, and they're persistent, I will frequently give in and say, look, there's always another chance and you didn't give up you know, and, and try to catch them so that they can realize that, Hey, I can just keep asking because I know some parents might get annoyed by that, you know, like, no, stop asking, but, mm -hmm. but I'll just process it. And, um, yeah. So I think that's interesting. Yeah. And I mean, and in, in terms of like, like professionally, there are differences in how women, show up in a negotiation versus how men show up in a negotiation. Um, so, I mean, now people are going back into the office and, and what women tend to do is we tend to operate within our shoulders. So if you are in a ah. conference room, you'll see, 
you know, you'll see most women will have their notebook in front of them or their laptop in front of them with a small notebook to the side and their phone. But most everything will be roughly within the, the space that of their shoulders, whereas men spread out and take more territory. Ah, and, and they'll so, like put their notebooks around yeah, and stuff. And so they yeah. have that field. Oh, wow. exactly. So one of the things that I teach when I'm working with women is to take up more space, to be okay, oh. taking up a bigger space of territory. Yeah. One of the other I totally do that. You're right. I totally do that. I stay in my little area and I'm really conscious if people are in my area, I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And that, and, and it's not, and, and we tend to think of it, um, we tend to think of it negatively, but it's really about, if you think about the taking up of space and the intersection of my space with, with your space, right there, there's, it is, it's an intersection. It's like, oh, we're blending our territories that that's actually creating opportunity for, for Ah, collaboration. That can be a rapport building. It could absolutely be rapport building. One of the other things that women do when we talk with each other and zoom is an interesting animal for this because it makes everybody talk face to face but women when we're physically present with each other we send it tend to stand in front of each other and talk face to face but if you watch most men talk to other men they tend to stand more side to side or off, they're off kilter there's they're, they're oh. not they're not direct face to face so for women this face to face conversation is about trust building um, and for men, it's, that's threatening. So it, it's aggressive, it's aggression. Mm. So they stand a little off to the sides with each other. So I make a point when I'm negotiating with men and I'm physically in space with uh, sharing space with men to, to really talk to them more off, off to the side, off to the um, side. Yeah. Yeah. Versus, versus women I'll stand more directly in front of. So And there's also cultural differences too. Like eye contact is acceptable in our country, but maybe not in some other countries like in in Asian. So I find the culture conversation to be, this is going to be a bit controversial. Okay. Um, I find it to be a bit of a red herring. So, and the reason why I find it to be a bit of a red herring is absolutely there are differences in the process by which people interact. So in most of Asia, there is a different way of handing somebody a business card. There's a different, you know, people of power sit in different places at the table in different countries. Mm -hmm. Different countries have um, kind of generally speaking, different patterns of speech, or they have um, different, you know, a different willingness to engage in broader dialogue um, and go deep and want to some, some cultures, they do a lot more socializing before business, other cultures, they do it after business. So there are those kind of cultural differences. But what I've discovered in all my years of negotiating internationally is that really people are people everywhere Mm. and our basics are our basics. And it doesn't matter if I'm in Serbia or Indonesia or Canada or new Orleans does not matter. 
people are people everywhere. So the pro there's some procedural things that are different, but I find that if I can create a human connection, then that's the that's really the most important thing is creating that human connection. And how I do that is slightly different from country to country, but actually the act of creating it is still the most important thing. Ah, beautifully said. What is Zen success to you? What is, what is what success? Zen, Z-E-N. I got it. What is Zen success? To you? you know, actually, it's so interesting that you asked that question, because if you'd asked me this question, you know, a couple of years ago, I, I, I don't think I would have been able to answer it. <laughs> um, for me, it, now it used to be about achieving. It used to be about um, recognition and power and influence. And, and it would, it's like achieve, you know, setting a goal and, meet, and meeting it. Now it's really about finding contentment, being able to kind of, and this is an overused phrase, um, and overwrought in my opinion, but I can't think of anything else, but it's kind of like, it's more about being in flow. And the way that I define flow for me is I think about a, literally a river, like that's like the ultimate manifestation for me. It's like, I do have big goals. I have, you know, this ocean of things that I want to be able to do. So the river banks are my boundaries that those are my nose that I am constantly exploring in some places that I have them more shored up than in others. And my, and the river, the water is represents all the yeses in my life that I, that I do. And for me, it's about, you know, occasionally I hit a waterfall. Occasionally I hit a, you know, a rock outcropping and I get a little battered, bruised. And, but it's about learning not to like swim upstream all the time, to not trying to fight the current anymore, to let go and, and, and just let the spiritual kind of take me to where I need to, where it needs me to go, not where I want to go. So it's more about a collective us and a collective we, and less about me and what I'm trying to achieve. Mm. Wow. That's profound. Well, it's been such a pleasure connecting with you, Christine. And you just shared so much wisdom in the short period of time. It was just powerful. So I think you're going to get a lot of feedback that people tried these negotiation tips and they worked. So I'll put your website and how to buy your book in the show notes. Any last words for our audience? Just remember that negotiation is a conversation about a relationship and you cannot win a relationship but you can get more value out of it. Beautiful. So remember her company, Venn, V-E-N-N, negotiation. All right, beautiful. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Zen Success. I would love to get your feedback at zensuccesspodcast.com on what topics you'd be most interested in and what Zen success is to you. Thanks for listening.